Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey, Major Junior. Hey, Connor McDavid of the Erie Otters. Matt Barzell of Seattle Thunderbirds. I'm Jonathan Yerudo from the St. John's Sea Dogs. I'm Braden Holpe for the Saskatoon Blades. This is Gabriel Landeskog. I'm playing for the Kitchen Rangers. Hi, this is Sean Couturier from the Drummondville Voltager. Carter Hart of the Everett Silvertips. This is Taylor Hall of the Windsor Spitfire. Nathan McKinnon from the Halifax Mooseheads. NCAA. Hey, this is Jack Eichel. I play at Boston University. It's Alex Turcotte. Hey, it's Kale McCarver. Hey, this is Jack Drury. Hey, it's Kyle Connor. Hi, this is Ian Mitchell of the Denver University Pioneers. It's Morgan Barron from Cornell University. Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan. Hello, this is uh, Jerry York, the coach at Boston College. The World Juniors. My name is Andres Fischko from uh, Team Russia. Hey, it's Joel Ferby from Team USA. It's Norris Sider from Germany. I'm Philip Broberg of the Team Sweden. It's Ellie Paul Lennon. Hey, it's Nikolai Ehlers. It's Matt Sogard. Hi, it's Timo Meyer. Hi, this is Jordan Edwards of Team Canada. The NHL Draft. This is Alexis Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Hi, it's Gordon Bicep from the Sudbury Wolves. Connor Derry from the Camelot Blazers. I'm Alexander Holtz. I'm Lucas Freeman. Cole Perfetti of the Saginaw Spirit. Dylan Holler from the Wisconsin Badgers. Hey, it's Jake Sanson. I play for Team USA. Brady Schneider, Caden Dooley. Here's Marco Rossi. I'm from the other sound. And more. Excellent! This is the Pipeline Show. Good weekend and welcome to the Pipeline Show. What a week. My name is Guy Flaming. Uh, thanks to those of you who might be newcomers to the program. Thanks for uh, downloading this week's episode and giving the uh, program a try. If you're a returning listener, a long-time listener, uh, then thank you for that continued support. And if you are a patron at patreon.com slash the Pipeline Show, you're probably coughing up a couple bucks a month so you can have early access to all the interviews. Uh, well, I really appreciate your support uh, because it's uh, your support that keeps the show going. Uh, through uh, these troubling times of where there's a definite lack of sponsorship and things like that available. So thank you to everybody who is uh, listening to the program right now. We usually start with the question of the week, but there is so much news and notes uh, to get to that we're going to skip that and get to uh, what's been happening this week because it is there's been a ton, and it seems like it's uh, something new every day. In fact, as I'm speaking with you right now, it is uh, Friday evening. Uh, I had started doing this show here on uh, this opening segment earlier today, uh, but had to scrap it because, well, there was big breaking news today. So so it made what I had uh, fairly redundant, and uh, so I had to freshen things up. Well, let's start with uh, the news today. Uh, Out of the Ontario Hockey League, the league yesterday had announced, or a couple of days ago had announced, their return to play a scenario which uh, set for February 4th where they were going to come back, they were going to play a 40-game season, eight teams would make the playoffs. All pretty straightforward for what's happening these days with all leagues. A uh, very abbreviated schedule. Uh, and then the news today that uh, the Minister of uh, Sport and Health and Tourism uh, in Ontario, Lisa McLeod, uh, said uh, the OHL, uh, if they're coming back, again, reiterating what she said a couple of weeks ago, there will be no hitting in the OHL. In fact, Sportsnet I put out a story today saying exactly that. I believe it was a Canadian press story that they piggybacked on. Uh, no hitting in the OHL. Immediately, everybody on social media is, including myself, uh, that is stupid. Makes no sense. Uh, but she has uh, since doubled down on that. Actually, more than doubled down. She's uh, she's exchanged uh, messages on Twitter with uh, both Bob McKenzie as well as uh, Darren Dreger. As after the Sportsnet story came out, 
uh, about an hour after that, I think, and all the massive reaction uh, had uh, started coming out. Pretty big shitstorm against what uh, Lisa McLeod had to say in the Sportsnet story. Uh, well, Darren had said uh, that uh, sources that he has had told him that there had been no official decision yet uh, with the OHL on removing body checking for the season. She tweeted onto that that th- that is not correct. Here's a quote. This is not correct. While we are working with the league on a safe return to play, we are not negotiating on public safety measures prescribed by the health table. A little bit later, she tweeted again, our public health officials have been clear, prolonged or deliberate contact while playing sports is not permitted, and we will continue to work with OHL on a safe return to play. Rick Westhead from TSN uh, then uh, tweeted that uh, the sports minister, Lisa McLeod, is unwavering. She told him a month ago there'd be no body checking. We even discussed that here on the show. And in uh, Rick's tweet, he says one doctor has advised the government that the OHL has a choice. They agree to the rules or they don't play. It's not a negotiation. And Lisa McLeod said that is correct. This isn't a health and sport tourism uh, decision. It's a health decision. And she ended that tweet with, I trust this matter is now settled. So three months before the OHL is set to return, the uh, sport minister in Ontario has said there will be no body contact in the OHL this season, which really opens up the door to speculation. What is body contact? Is it driving a guy through the boards while you're chasing down a puck? That would be body checking, but body contact, so you're not allowed to bump anybody, you're not battling for pucks or position in front of the net, uh, really opens the door to what is and what doesn't fall under the heading of body contact. So I have, this has probably been three, four hours now as I'm speaking with you right now and recording. Uh, Since she had made those tweets, I haven't seen anything in support of what she is tweeting about on any level. I'm not seeing any support. Anybody who has anything to do with hockey is saying what she is talking about is, uh, well, what I tweeted, ludicrous. And I've said it a thousand times already, but the OHL, the Canadian Major Junior Hockey League, is a developmental league. And in fact, this decision doesn't just affect the OHL, it's... Every league in Ontario, it's sport in general in Ontario. Uh, So that also has to do with the four CJHL leagues. So the CCHL and the uh, NOJHL and the SIJHL and the OJHL. So the four junior A leagues, no contact. Well, what about the NHL? There's also an American Hockey League team. So three months ahead of time, uh, the government stance from the uh, sport minister is there will not be any Body contact raises the question why it's been determined three months ahead of time that that's going to be the case. We could get to Christmas or January and uh, the world will look a lot, could look a lot different than it does now. Good Lord. Can you, can you predict, can anybody predict what things are going to be like three months from now? I don't think so. So that's uh, the big story out of the Ontario Hockey League that came out today. Also this week, well, Team Canada released their uh, World Junior Camp roster of 46 and then 47 players who will be convening in Red Deer to try to um, crack the World Junior roster. Uh, Five goaltenders will be going to camp. Not quite the same five that were at the summer camp, uh, the virtual summer camp, what, three, four months ago now, uh, as uh, Sebastian Kosa of the Oil Kings no longer involved, and instead Devin Levi, who was a seventh-round pick of the Florida Panthers, he uh, gets an invite. And I don't have any problem at all with Devin Levi getting an invite. He'd be my number three guy 
on the team. Uh, but Sebastian Kosa was my number two guy on the team. I, for me, Dylan Grand is the starter. Uh, the other two goaltenders that are there are three, Brett Brochu, uh, Taylor Goche, who is a veteran at the junior level, so he's probably uh, well in the mix. Uh, and Tristan Lennox are the other two from the Ontario Hockey League. I have Kosa uh, ahead of both of those guys. Lennox, his numbers last year with Saginaw, not great. And he's a late 0-2, same age as uh, Kosa. Uh, Brett Brochu is uh, 5'11". Uh, Sebastian Kosa is almost 6'6". And his numbers last year on a contending team were fantastic. Uh, Lennox on a contending team, not good. So we'll chat about the invite list uh, for uh, Canada's team a little bit later on in the show. I'll tell you who is coming on to do that with me. Uh, next news item has to do with uh, WHL players. In fact, CHL players. If they don't have a place to play right now, especially if this would specifically be for the WHL and the OHL, well, late last week, the WHL uh, announced that they would allow the players to play uh, Junior A hockey this year. So in in Canada, that would be in the um, MJHL, Manitoba, the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, the Alberta Junior Hockey League, and the British Columbia Hockey League. Now also some reports uh, that uh, you might see some uh, CHL players heading south to play in the USHL. And my first thought was, well, there's only 14 teams in the USHL this year, so there's not going to be a lot of room for that many players. I do wonder if it will be the American players. You know, guys out of the WHL who are from the United States and aren't playing right now, they're not going to be coming up to play in the BCHL. So maybe those are the guys who go to the USHL. That makes more sense to me. And in that regard, there might be 10, maybe. And then maybe likewise for the um, the Americans who are in the Ontario Hockey League. That would make some sense to me. So we'll see uh, how many of those players uh, find their way in the USHL. And I said there are 14 teams. Well, Chicago, the Steel, uh, GM Ryan Hardy, who was on the show about a month ago, he has already said this week that uh, he's not looking to bring any CHL players in. So I guess we can say 13 teams in the USHL. That might be a potential fit for CHL guys. And last big news uh, story to touch on might be the biggest news of the week, and it involves uh, player Mitchell Miller, who was drafted by the Arizona Coyotes in the fourth round uh, just three weeks ago. Well, if you'll remember, listeners to this show will remember back in late July, I had uh, recorded an interview with uh, Mitchell, which I ended up not using uh, on the show. When I had finished the interview and I had uh, edited it all up and I put it on the Patreon page for the uh, subscribers, I had tweeted out the link to that. And uh, after I'd done that, an NHL team had contacted me and wanted to know how the interview went. They said it was okay. And they said uh, they wanted to know how he handled the questions about his past. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I've, I've told this story before on the show as well. But for uh, people who might just be hearing about it for the first time, I had no idea what the scout was talking about. He sent me the links to all these stories of what happened in Ohio when uh, Miller was 14 years old. He and another player had physically assaulted uh, a black classmate who also happens to have a uh, physical and a mental disability. And as the story goes on, they both went. All, both of these kids went to a court and they were uh, they were given fines and penalties. Uh, the one assailant was uh, very apologetic and uh, made restitution. Uh, with the victim and his family, uh, whereas uh, according to the press reports that I had read uh, that were written back in 2016, 
neither the victim's parents nor the uh, magistrate who was uh, overseeing the uh, court case uh, felt that Mitchell Miller felt remorse or was apologetic uh, to his victim at all, uh, but that, in fact, he felt sorry for himself. Now, so what did I do with the interview? Well, I didn't air it, and it, I struggled with that for a little while because, you know, I was weighing the fact that, yes, he was 14 years old, but at 14, you pretty have a pretty good sense of what's right and what's wrong. Um, so what I had ended up doing was I contacted Mitchell Miller via text, which I had done the uh, couple of days leading up to the actual recording of the interview as we had to settle on a time that was good for him around practice, things like that. Uh, and he replied to all of those texts. Well, I texted him again and said, this is what's happening. This is what I've been told. I want you to come back on the show. We'll record another five minutes where you can address that. And I'll put it back into the interview and we'll go from there. Well, I never heard from the player again. Uh, I tracked down who his agent is and uh, contacted him or tried to. Did not hear from the agent either. So I decided, well, I'm not going to air the interview as it is uh, without uh, some sort of comment from the player or his agent in regard to that story. So uh, that interview never aired. So I was curious to see if he would be drafted and if so, which team would draft him. Uh, because I knew that there were teams who definitely were not interested in drafting him, largely because of the shitstorm that would occur after they had picked him, and that is exactly what happened here this week, as uh, there was a story out of Arizona. I don't have that original story in front of me, I apologize, but detailed all of the events that happened back in 2016. And for a casual fans, they would have not heard anything about it either. Heck, I didn't before I had interviewed the player. So this was new information for a lot of people, and of course then the mainstream hockey media got on board with it, and yeah, shitstorm is a uh, maybe an understatement. Uh, as it's uh, turned out, the Arizona Coyotes have relinquished their rights to Mitchell Miller, so they've basically, he was their first pick of the draft. It wasn't until the fourth round, but he's the first player they picked this year. Uh, they have cut ties with him. And that obviously was giving in to public pressure. Well, now North Dakota, where he was going to school this year, have also cut him from the hockey team. He's still going to, or at least he has the opportunity to still go to school at the University of North Dakota, but he will not be playing hockey for the Fighting Hawks. So we shall see what happens with Mitchell Miller. Does he uh, transfer to another school? Will another school take him? I believe his uh, CHL rights are held by the Sarnia Sting. I, I don't have that in front of me either, but I think that's what I remember seeing before. Not sure that Sarnia would take him, but somebody out there might. Uh, so we'll see if uh, Mitchell Miller ends up anywhere else. As I said, big, busy week in terms of uh, news. And in fact, some of the interviews I had uh, this week might not address some of these topics because they'd happened two, two days ago and some of this newsworthy stuff has happened since the interview. So that is the the one risk of uh, doing interviews uh, a couple of days ago and then putting a show together and, and uh, having it all come out at the end of the week. But that's the way it goes. So let's get to the guest list this week because it is a uh, loaded show, a great show that I think you will enjoy a lot. And all four of my guests will join me courtesy the Troubled Monk hotline. Of course, the tap room in Red Deer is open if you can get there. Uh, then you should stop by and check it out. I haven't had a chance to do that yet, but I do have an order in for a new stock of a Troubled Monk beverages because it is craft beer worth sharing. And right now, if you order before 1 o'clock and you happen to live in Edmonton, Calgary, Red Deer, 
Sherwood Park, or St. Albert, and you can get same-day home delivery for free. Doesn't matter if you're spending, uh, if you're buying a six-pack or you're buying a flat or three flats. You know, if it's twenty bucks or two hundred bucks, makes no difference. If you use the promo code Pipeline, uh, that delivery will come to you right to your door at absolutely no charge. And a little birdie has told me that I might be getting some uh, brand new flavors from Troubled Monk in my next shipment. So I will let you know about that. Uh, well, I guess next week because I don't have it yet. But uh, looking forward to that. All right, my guest this week, we will have a conversation with Mike Sawatsky, who uh, writes for the Winnipeg Free Press, covers the Winnipeg Ice, as well as, well, right now, the Manitoba Junior Hockey League. I chatted with him on Wednesday to get his sense on the WHL's return to uh, play scenarios and about the uh, WHL players being allowed to play Junior A hockey. So we'll chat with him about that. Uh, then we'll head... To the Ontario Hockey League, Sanaya Sapergi from The Athletic is going to join me. really enjoyed the conversation with uh, Sanaya. It had been a while since I talked to her, and she's so good. We, we actually talked for about 45 minutes, uh, only about 18 minutes of which I'm going to use for the show, because a lot of it was uh, other stuff that would well, be great if you were at a party and you could, you know, if you were a fly on the wall, you'd enjoy it, uh, but not for air. Uh, but we talked to Sanaya, or I talked to Sanaya, about the OHL's return to play, and See, this is one of those instances where I had that conversation and a day later, there's breaking news because I don't talk to her about, well, actually, in a way, we do kind of talk about it because I asked her about it. We both kind of joke about the whole thought of no body contact in the OHL. Well, I'll let you hear that conversation. And the way things have turned out now is it's it's actually a little funny. Uh, so Sanaya Sapergi on the show today. Then we'll have uh, an NCAA campus report. Jimmy Connolly from USTHO will stop by. Ask him about uh, the various differences between the starting plans for the six conferences in the NCAA this year and a little bit more. And we will end things with the general manager for Hockey Canada's U-20 program. That would be Alan Miller. He's also the GM of the Moose Jaw Warriors. Obviously, we're going to talk about Team Canada and the World Junior Camp invite list. So lots to get to. Let's start it off, though. Mike Sawatsky from the Winnipeg Free Press. He's up first here on the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Now near side, White. Far side, Krebs. Wrist shot. Scores! Peyton Krebs, a wrist shot from the far side and gets by Bailey Birkin. Hey, Peyton Krebs from the Kootenai Ice, and this is the Pipeline Show. Nothing compares to the smile on a child's face after their wish has been granted. The Rainbow Society of Alberta is dedicated to granting wishes throughout the province to children who have been diagnosed with a life-threatening or severe chronic medical illness. And you can help too. View the wishes, refer a child, and donate at rainbowsociety.ab.ca or get involved as a volunteer. Having a wish come true fills a child's heart with hope and happiness. Visit rainbowsociety.ab.ca today. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Oh, my. This is The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and we'll begin this week's episode with a segment, uh, well, in the dub segment. And all of those are brought to you by dubnetwork.ca. You can stay up to date on everything happening around the Western Hockey League uh, by subscribing to The Daily Dose and get that sent right to your inbox so you don't even have to look for it. 
my guest today coming from Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Free Press beat writer, Mike Sawatsky. Mike, welcome to the Pipeline Show. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Key. Uh, nice to talk to you as well. Well, I appreciate you making the time. Interesting uh, times uh, as the WHL has announced uh, their plan to return to action on uh, January 8th, and that's not a tentative date. That is uh, what they are going with. Uh, come hell or high water, by the sounds of it, uh, there's lots we're going to touch on, but maybe we'll start with that. What was your reaction to that news when it came out a couple weeks ago? Well, I, I mean, I, I kind of get the idea why you want to announce something that is supposedly a firm date, but, you know, if, if they're going to start the season on January 8th and they're talking about 50 games per team, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, how does that really happen? Um, if they really want to go by the, you know, the regional, you know, the divisional setup where, where teams are, are going on the road for a night, playing a game and then coming home, I don't know how you get 50 games, 50 regular season games into like a, a four month, uh, uh, stretch. So maybe I'm just not doing the math right, but it, it seems like it could be a pretty tough thing to pull off. Uh, maybe the season is going to be shorter than we think. Well, and I haven't done the math. I haven't broke out uh, the the calendar and tried to plot things out. So uh, math isn't my strong point to, to start with. But <laughs> I, I was interested when they when uh, Commissioner Ron Robinson was talking about trying to alleviate eliminate as much travel as possible, but there was no plans uh, and and hotel stays as well. But I thought like a, a team from, if, let's use the Saskatchewan, Manitoba uh, loop as they're all going to play against one another. But if Brandon is going up to Prince Albert, wouldn't you want to go and play two or three times so you can eliminate the travel back and forth? But that does mean hospital stays or hospital stays. Let's, let's hope that's not the case. Uh, hotel stays. Um, wouldn't you want to try to, you know, bank some of that, uh, eliminate some of the travel, uh, but that's going to lead to more hotel stays? Right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, what is it, eight hours on the highway one way? I mean, you know, you could do a, a Winnipeg to Brandon trip in five and a half hours or Moose Jaw, that's another half hour. You know, that's something that's that's doable, an overnighter. But uh, Saskatoon, PA, uh, Swift Current, mm-hmm. um that's a little tougher in, in, my, in my mind. And uh, so, I mean, clearly they've had months to think about this, and I will be very interested to see what the schedule looks like uh, when we finally see it. Uh, no question. All right. Uh, what is the situation in Manitoba like these days? Have cases uh, of COVID-19, is coronavirus, is it like a plateau or is it going here in Alberta? Things are getting worse again. Uh, what's it like where you are? It's through the roof. Uh, we were, I would, I think it's fair to say that we were very cocky here through the first three, four months of this thing. Um, a lot of you talk to people and they'd say, you know, we're in maybe the safest place on earth to be during this. And then, uh, probably a month and a half ago, things started to spike. And, uh, we know why people have not been care- very careful. And, uh, now the infection rate is, uh, is really reaching an alarming level or levels and uh you know it'll be very interesting to see what happens next because uh people clearly um aren't uh, really committed to to shutting this thing down very very much and I and I wonder how that's going to affect uh, a lot of things including hockey just my opinion but the uh, the 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 spike in uh, cases here I don't think it's any coincidence that 2 weeks ago was uh, Canadian Thanksgiving and course families get together and uh, most of that happens indoors at this time of year uh, and then I look at that January 8th start date well right before that is Christmas 
Um, so yeah, I, if we're learning anything about what's happening right now, um, I, I tend to think that uh, it's going to be problematic around the start date uh, as well. Um, meanwhile, the MJHL is, uh, has begun play. You're, it seems like uh, following you on Twitter as I do, uh, at Sawa14. Uh, sounds like you're covering the MJHL a little bit more than usual. Oh, I think that's probably <laughs> true. Uh, I'm looking at my list right now, and uh, as we speak, there have been 18 guys uh, from regular rosters in the Western League uh, commit to MJHL teams over the last five days, and uh, you know that number is going to continue to grow a little bit. I don't know how many, how much more room there is for these guys. I know there are a lot of players who are eager to get game action in, and uh, mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's made for some. You know, very interesting moves in in the last few weeks, and and it could mean that uh, the watching the games will be interesting as well, as long as you can get a ticket. You know, it was funny when that announcement came out last week. My first thought was, you know what, that's great. The players get an opportunity to go somewhere and play. They get to continue to develop. That's terrific. And then as it kind of sat with me for a few days, I started thinking about the players who are losing their spots, and uh, I'm not sure how well that. That will go over, and you know, if January 8th comes and the WHL starts up, all those players leave those teams. Um, are those players who got bumped are going to be happy campers coming back to their junior A clubs? I think it's good on one hand, but I am worried about the ramifications. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I agree that that could be an issue, but uh, I mean, that's where uh, you know these GMs and and coaches sort of earn their keep, right? They're they're going to have to massage the the situation and you know make make the people who are are affected by this uh feel okay about it um i mean hockey's a tough business and and people lose jobs all the time uh in me although it does seem you know kind of unfair but uh i mean i think there's there's only one team in the mj and that's swan valley that hasn't added a player yet hmm. um and i think they may not and you know a lot of the reason for that is they don't want to sort of upset the equilibrium they have with their their own roster. But uh, uh, some teams are just eager to to add the talent and uh, see what happens. Uh, they can have them have these guys till till December 20th. And uh, you know what? Um, I think if I were in that position, I'd be adding players too. And uh, uh, it, it certainly makes it uh, even more fun to to watch and cover a league when you see things like this happening. Has the MJHL expanded rosters? I don't know if that's the case in the SJHL or here in, with the Alberta Junior Hockey League, but just to accommodate the influx of WHL guys coming to the Junior A rank, uh, rather than a guy losing his spot, do they just create uh, more room on the roster? Well, that's what they've done. I, th- I think the, the roster deadline has been pushed back till sometime in January and I think, as far as I can tell, most teams are carrying about 26 players, and uh, you know that's including their the, the guys they've added in the last week. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't I don't think the that part of it is an is an issue. I mean, I don't, you're not going to have people going home because of this. Um, it probably just means uh, less ice time for for some of the people uh, lower on the depth chart. I would think. And a new team in the MJHL this year, right? Another uh, second team in Winnipeg? Yeah, how's this for a crazy thing? A month before the season starts, they announced they're expanding to 12 teams. And 
A lot of the genesis of this, uh, I guess, was to get to an even 12 so they could go to a three-divisional setup, um, and a lot of that has to do with dealing with the pandemic. They want to have these four, 14 divisions playing against each other for the most part right. uh, throughout the year. And uh, so they added a team, the Winnipeg Freeze. They're, they're owned by the, the same uh, company that owns the the Western League's uh, ice and also the MGHL's uh, blues. So, um, I mean, uh, it's, it's a really unique kind of crazy situation. It, does that fly with the rest of the league? I mean, I guess these are strange times and maybe it's not forever, but to have two teams in the same league owned by this with same ownership, that doesn't really fly, does it, long term? Well, I mean, I think long term, that's the intention that it, that it will continue, but, uh, oh. No, I, I think, uh, you know, if, if people were being completely honest, there's a fair bit of grumbling about this, but mm. uh, uh, it, they, this, the sense was that they really needed to have a, uh, a 12-team balance and they were going to do this. And, uh, you know, they assembled a team within within a month uh, to go to training camp. So, uh, I mean, that, that seems like a pretty tall order to come up with a competitive team. And, and the Freeze haven't won a game yet, so... Uh, I'll be interested to see how that uh, how the season plays out for them. Mike Sawatsky from the Winnipeg Free Press, my guest here on the Pipeline Show, looking at, uh, well, the WHL and the MJHL. Uh, we mentioned some of those dub players who are going to Junior A. There's actually been a, a couple, maybe two or three, that have gone overseas as well, and the Winnipeg Ice have one of those guys in uh, Carson Lambos, who's uh, gone over to play in Finland. Uh, Connor Bedard of the Regina Pats is over in Sweden as well. Uh, an interesting option, not available to everybody. You got to be pretty darn talented uh, as a 17 or an 18 year old, or 15 in the case of Bedard, uh, to go over and take a spot. But uh, good for those guys to find some uh, playing time overseas. Well, sure, and I and I guess you hit the nail on the head there. If, if you're the caliber of a, of a player like Bedard or Lambos, and you have a high profile agent like Mark McKay, um, you can do things like this and. Uh, uh, I talked to Carson uh, earlier this week, and uh, uh, he's learning to adjust to life in Finland. He's probably only going to be there for six weeks, but he felt in his draft year, his family felt uh, the same, that uh, it was really imperative for him to play some games, um, continue his, his development that way, because uh, from what Mark McKay told me earlier this week, he felt that... Uh, that the most recent draft, there were North American players who, because they hadn't played games in a long time, and because uh, European players had been playing in their leagues in the lead up to the 2020 draft, that they were at a competitive disadvantage. And he he felt that that was a, another good reason for for Carson to go to Finland, um, experience a new culture, uh, you know, new learn a uh, new training techniques play with new people, um, and uh, Carson really seems like he he feels that this is the, the right way to go. It's a, it's a temporary thing, and uh, it'll be a learning experience, but uh, he felt he, he would come out of it uh, a better player. 2021 draft will be a really big one for uh, defensemen, for sure, and Lambos right in that mix uh, at the very top end. Uh, of uh, the right. rankings for 2021. Uh, overall, what's the uh, the picture look like for the Winnipeg Ice this coming season? Uh, every team's going to lose their 20-year-olds from last year, uh, and no, in a normal year, 
a guy like Peyton Krebs might be questionable whether he comes back because of the NHL, but we don't know if the NHL is going to get off and running uh, on time either. Uh, how different could the um, the ice roster look this year, though? Well, I, th- I think it's going to be pretty similar. Uh, I mean, one of the the big things that uh, Winnipeg had an issue with early in the season was they needed to find experienced goaltending. Yeah. Uh, they started with Jesse McKay, and that, that didn't work out uh, all that well. And uh, they brought Liam Hughes in at Christmas, Christmas time, and uh, he was a godsend. He, he really basically turned their season around. They went from being probably just an average team to a, a division title contender in the space of a month. So, mm-hmm. and he played very well. But uh, you know, he's a, he was a 20 year old, and and you know, maybe that's uh, the route they go again this year. They they drafted a, a Slovak uh, in the uh, import draft in summer, and that's seemed to be uh, one way of, of filling that uh, that slot this year. Um, but we really don't know. Um, you know, I think uh, their the fortunes of this team probably depend a lot on on uh, if and and when uh, Peyton Krebs returns. I would suspect he's he's black back in junior for another year. Um, I don't know that uh, you know he's going to find a regular roster spot in Vegas. He may stay have an extended stay there, but uh, I know Cody Glass is probably going to be rehabbed from an injury, and he'll be probably ready to take a real run at the number two center role there with the Golden Knights. So uh, whether Krebs plays in the NHL or not uh, this year probably has a huge impact on on what the ice do in 2021. How did the first year go in Winnipeg for the ice? And just you look in in Winnipeg, and obviously there's an NHL club with the Jets, and the AHL Moose are there. You had the ice. Now there's two MJHL teams. Is there room for all of these clubs? Well, I guess I guess the easy answer is sure. Uh, but how many people will actually come to watch all this hockey? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think it, 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 it was the first year and it was hard to tell, uh, what the sort of public reception for the, for the Western League was. I mean, the Western League hadn't had a team in Winnipeg since 83, 84. That's a long time. And, and people are really fairly, uh, ig- most hockey fans are ignorant to the, uh, <clears throat> to, what the Westerling is all about or major juniors all about. And, it, and there's going to be a, a re-education process there. I think, uh, it may take a while and, you know, they don't have a, they don't have their own facility yet. Uh, I think that's an issue. Um, so, um, whether, you know, it'll be a, a hit at the box office, you know, that's, uh, that's going to take some time to tell because, uh, you know they they had a, they were playing in a small venue, um, so crowds were generally fairly small, and uh, there were a fair number of corporate uh, tickets that they sold where people weren't using their tickets. So the stands often looked emptier probably mm-hmm. than they should have. So um, I think long term, you know, you've got an owner there with uh, deep pockets. Uh, uh, they're going to be around for a while for sure. Uh, it just uh, Gonna, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how the franchise uh, develops uh, in year two and beyond. Do you know what the timeline is for the uh, the new building? I wish I did. I know that uh, originally it was going to be uh, 
two years. And uh, the last time I talked to owner Greg Fettis about this, uh, the building process had been delayed by another year. So they were going to spend another a third season uh, at the U of M for sure. Um, and a lot he said at the time uh, is when I talked about it in, in spring uh, had to do with, uh, of course, the impact of the pandemic. Uh, he said at the time he was actually going to have to, was reconsidering the entire design of whatever building they ended up uh, putting up. Um, so there were a lot of this, a lot of things that he he uh, wasn't clear on about uh, what he was going to need for this team. So um, you know, I I'd like to that'll be uh, very interesting to find out what those plan when those plans come to fruition and and uh, how soon what the timeline is like. All right. Well, I guess the next big thing will be the start of the season. We'll see. If that gets off the ground, uh, Mike, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I hope you don't mind if I call you again. No problem. It's uh, great talking to you. Thanks. That's Mike Sawatsky from the Winnipeg Free Press. And uh, since that conversation with uh, Mike, the MJHL has suspended a bunch of games as uh, COVID uh, just increasing, uh, cases of COVID just increasing uh, astronomically here in Manitoba by their standards. Like uh, reportedly they had 480 positive uh, uh, cases announced on Friday, and the previous record had been uh, under 200. Uh, so that's a huge jump in cases uh, there. So as of now, the MJHL has uh, put a stop to everything, uh, seeing that being reported by uh, Greg Drennan on his blog, which is always a, a good summary of uh, stuff that's happening around uh, the hockey community. And when we come back, the conversation I had earlier this week with Sanaya Sapergi about uh, the OHL's plans uh, to return to play in early February, and of course, uh, some other of the hot button stuff going around with the OHL. That's next here on the Pipeline Show. Here's Perlini. Perlini loads it up and he scores! It's a hey, it's Brendan Perlini from Niagara Ice Dogs, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. There's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go out and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The Store Next Door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with, and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks. A lot. A whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. All right, we're back on the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and we're going to have a uh, 
A CHL insider join me momentarily to talk about well the uh, news this week from the Ontario Hockey League, but also reflect on uh, the Q and uh, what's happening in the WHL as well. But uh, we're going to go to Ontario now, and uh, my guest this week, my CHL insider, is Sanaya Sapergi from The Athletic. Sanaya, been a while. Great to uh, have you on the show again. How are things? Uh, things are good, all things considered. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, and interesting, as you and I are chatting right now, it's uh, Wednesday evening. This show will come out uh, in a couple of days. But uh, news today out of the Ontario Hockey League. And I know there was lots of ground that's been covered, so maybe give us the Coles notes or go as in-depth as you want. But what's the news out of the Ontario Hockey League? Sure. So there was a, a meeting for OHL general managers um, today on Wednesday, and it was decided that the uh, season will now start on February 4th with training camps starting about a week and a half earlier. And as it stands right now, they're looking at a 40-game regular season and an 18 playoff with four teams from each conference. Talking to some GMs today, two of the big issues that were not discussed were what will happen to the U.S.-based teams and what is happening in terms of, of contact. Earlier this month, Lisa McLeod, who is the Provincial Minister for Sport in Ontario, said that there would be no contact or body checking allowed if the OHL wanted to play this season. One of the GMs I spoke to today said that the league uh, has been talking to the government, but there have have been uh, no real talks uh, at the GM level about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Personally, I don't know how the the league would be able to operate if uh, that was the case. So the people I spoke with uh, today seem to think that they would be able to find a solution. Yeah, that was interesting. That was something that came up. We had a, a conference call with Ron Robinson, and we asked him about that. And he, he almost kind of chuckled audibly when he uh, was asked about, you know, could the WHL play without body contact? It just seems like a ludicrous idea. Personally, to me, that's like asking NCAA football or U-sport football to play two-hand touch and then expect to push those athletes onto the NFL or the CFL. The CHL is a developmental hockey league. you got to play the same way as it's played at the next level, do you not? Yeah, and I, I mean, I know there's been talk about uh, wearing uh, full face shields, and um, I, I know some companies have developed um, masks that you can wear while while playing sports, but mm-hmm. I don't know how you could have um, ho- a hockey game without any kind of, of contact whatsoever. whatsoever. Even, if you, even if you look at, at games um, which are played in, in like no contact, no contact league, mm-hmm. there is contact, even in those no contact, even in, in leagues without, without body checking, you know, there's still contact. So I have, I have no idea how that would work. Um, if, if that were, were going to be the case. No, like I said, the people I spoke to don't think that, that that's going to, to happen. Well, like, quite frankly, even it goes further than body contact. When you, you watch two players line up to take a face off, their heads are, you know, they could be three inches apart. They could almost be kissing. They're that close uh, as they lean over to take the draw. Uh, I remember when I was a kid playing road hockey, you'd put the puck down and you'd kind of uh, each take your turn tapping each other's stick above the puck three times, one, two, three, and then kind of do a face-off. I don't know if you'd have to change the CHL to, to go road hockey rules or something, but you can't social distance while you're taking a draw. Yeah, and I think I think if you look um, at what's happened in the queue, if you look at the early cases this month, you know, the Armada were the first team to be quarantined with, with 18 positive cases, followed by the Sherbrooke Phoenix with, with eight after the two teams played each other twice. But, you know, 
I think the the thing that, that that really illustrated early was just how quickly it spread, because in addition to, to those cases, there were also two officials who worked that game who tested positive. Mm. So it's, I think it was interesting to see that, you know, it, it's not just the, the players, it's the officials as, as well um, that, that you have to be mindful of. And it, it's not like there's a lot of, of you know, contact or hitting with, with the officials, right? So it, it's going to be interesting to, to see the kind of precautions that, that they take. So I know the the queue started uh, earlier this month. It seems like forever ago, and almost right away, we've had a uh, lots of uh, uh, speed bumps and uh, and things like that in the queue around uh, COVID. Uh, the WHL pushed their start back from early December now to January eighth, and they insist that's a firm start date. Uh, the OHL, as you mentioned, has now uh, decided to go at it at or early February. How much of what's going on in the queue do you think is influencing the WHL and the OHL right now? Oh, I, I think it's it's huge. I think the the queue is is kind of acting um, as a, a guinea pig for the the other two leagues. But I think it's also um, important to understand, um, you know, that uh, with hotspots in in Quebec, um, certain regions are are uh, also being shut down. You know, the the season for Quebec teams will will actually restart again on on Friday, um, though it's only um, teams in the orange and yellow zones that will continue to play. So right now that's Ramuski, Bekomo, uh, Val d'Or and Ruan Naranda, um, that will all be in action over the weekend. But, uh, we'll see how long it lasts because, you know, as cases keep rising in, in Quebec, you've got more and more of these regions, as I mentioned, entering these red zones. But at one point, there were, I think, six teams that had to put their seasons on hold. So the league just decided to shut down play in Quebec for two weeks. And, you know, that, again, is going to be lifted this weekend. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward because, you know, right now we've got Drummondville. They had seven positive cases last week, and they're um, now in a 14-day quarantine. And while this is going on, you've still got the Atlantic bubble with the maritime teams and, you know, that's holding strong with only like the monks and wildcats suspending play because their region was a hot spot, but, but they're back in, in action too. And I, I think what, uh, what the Western Hockey League and the Ontario Hockey League can learn from this is, is to make sure that their schedule maker gets a big raise because, you know, the, whoever's doing the, the schedule making in the queue is, is definitely, um, earning one. Um, because that's that's a lot of rescheduling that's that's going to be uh, happening. Yeah, no question. Uh, one other thing I saw out of the queue that you actually tweeted it out, or I uh, you retweeted and I followed suit was the uh, the was it Schwinnigan kind of made their own little bubble. It's almost like they have a summer camp or something, I guess winter camp, where they're all housed in the same building. Yeah, they've they've got kind of a, a dormitory style um, yeah. set up now. Um, all the players are going to be uh, quarantining, or I guess not quarantining, but um, together um, in their own little uh, bubble. They're going to be going to, to school in their bubble and, and uh, doing all of that together. So I, I'm guessing it'll be good for team bonding <laughs> for sure. Um, but I, I think the other, the good thing about it is it also um, it also takes out the uh, extra pe- pressure put on on billet families. Right. Um, you know, so they don't have to worry about, um, about that, especially when you see 
the kind of cases that um, have been spreading in the Quebec loop so far. So I'm wondering if uh, you could take it further. Is it feasible? You, you have that dormitory style living situation, call it a bubble. You go from there onto your bus and you're just going from the bus to the rink and to play and you go back onto the bus and go back to the to the uh, the dorms. Do you think that's feasible for the U.S. markets in both the, the OHL and the WHL? If because I don't know what the plan is for the three teams in, in the OHL, at least here in the WHL, it's its own division. Um, but is that something that might be used south of the border for the Canadian Hockey League? Yeah, that's that's really going to be um, tough because that's the big issue, I think, with the, the U.S. teams and the OHL specifically because the U.S.-Canada border is closed for the foreseeable future. And, you know, there are only three teams based in the U.S., so... The OHL still has to figure out how that might work. You know, if they were to create some kind of bubble, um, I don't know how you could make it work with, with just three teams. Um, you know, the other hurdle that they got out of the way though was, was, you know, the fact that, um, Europeans and, um, American players coming over, um, playing on Canadian teams, they'll be able to join their, their teams in the new year and quarantine before the start of the, the preseason. But, uh, I don't know how the OHL is going to make that work. They they didn't discuss that oddly enough in their um, meeting today. Um, that's what I was told by a uh, general manager. I think it's it's a little bit different in the um, Western Hockey League because uh, there are five teams in the U.S. division, so I, I think it'll be uh, easier to um, move to that um, divisional bubble format for for those teams. And speaking of the WHL's uh, bubble uh, format, uh, for those who don't know, all all five BC teams will only play against one another. Same with Alberta. Uh, the two in Manitoba will join the five in Saskatchewan for a 17 uh, bubble, and then the five in the States. You were just telling me before uh, we started chatting here today that uh, there was some news. You were ch- chatting with somebody out of the WHL that the scheduling might have uh, its own little quirks uh, this year as well. Right. So um, when uh, Ron Robinson had his uh, press conference, you know, he mentioned the January 8th start date as fixed and that they were looking at a a 50 game uh, regular season schedule. My understanding is that the um, Western Hockey League, when they move to that bubble format, those divisions will get to set their own schedules. So the 50 games would be the maximum but a division could choose to play a 30-game schedule if they wanted, um, if no fans were allowed. So this is basically to allow teams to have more control over their financial modeling if fans um, are or are not allowed in uh, into ranks. And I would expect to see more information um, on that possibly next month because I, I think, you know, that's really the important um, thing here. Uh, is, is the financial impact that this is going to have on, on teams, not only in the Western Hockey League, but across the CHL, um, even if they are able to play a regular season, because you've got the issue of, of fans in the stands and whether or not teams will be allowed to have people watching. You know, how, fi- how viable is that going to be um, financially? And, you know, even if fans are allowed, how many of them are going to actually um feel comfortable enough to go to the rink even with masks and and social distancing yeah 
Yeah, teams are really going to have to be creative on ways to find uh, new revenue streams. And I, I know Ron Robinson was asked about it. I don't know if it came up in the uh, with the discussions you had with anybody today uh, out west or in the OHL. But do you think that the CHL even considers uh, going with um, uh, you know ads on the uh, the jerseys, make it look like NASCAR, or like uh, European hockey, with lots of corporate logos and stuff all over the ice and all over the jerseys, even if it's a, a short-term, one-year thing until we get on the other side of this pandemic. Do you think that's something they consider? You, you know what? Honestly, from the people I've been talking to, I, I think everything is, is on the, the table um, as, as far as, as that is concerned in looking at different revenue streams. You know, one exec I spoke to said that about 70% of his team's revenue um, came from ticket sales. So when you when you are are looking at that, I think it's going to be quite dire for a lot of teams. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit different right now in the Quebec League, only because the province stepped up and they gave um, the QMJHL twelve million dollars to help uh, keep their teams in Quebec uh, afloat. Right. But uh, you know, even if you have teams playing this season financially, I think it's going to be very tough. For, for teams across the CHL. is my guest. She writes for The Athletic. You can follow her on Twitter at Sanayas. That's S-U-N-A-Y-A-S. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the, out here, we're seeing the WHL has a, a put out a press release last week. They're going to allow their players uh, the opportunity to play junior A hockey. And a lot of teams and a lot of players have already uh, set uh, moves like that up. I'm wondering if uh, that's the same for the OHL, if uh, OHL guys will be able to go play Junior A in, in the, what are there, four Junior A leagues in Ontario, maybe more than that? You know what, I asked about that today, and I was told that that was not even discussed. It was not even up for discussion, so um, it looks like the answer is no on that so far. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and I know there was some concern out here about, I'll be honest, my first thought was, that's a great thing for the players because that gets them, allows them somewhere to play and they can play competitively and it helps continue their development. But as I thought more about it, that also means they're taking the jobs or they're taking the spots of other players. And I'm not sure how I feel about that unless they're just expanding the rosters to allow for those WHL guys to come in. But uh, some leagues have gone pay to play and I'm not sure how that affects uh, the WHL guys who are moving down. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I think the reaction has definitely been been mixed because, like you said, on one hand, you have people who are happy that players will be able to play and get ice time. And then on the other hand, you've got um, players taking roster spots from from other players at at lower levels. Um, So I definitely understand both sides of of the issue. So when it comes to pay to play, um, some of the leagues, you know, like the BCHL, for example, they've adopted a pay-to-play format for this season if they aren't able to have fans in the stands to offset some of their lost gate revenue. Hmm. And again, if you think it's going to be a bad year financially for CHL teams, it's probably going to be even worse for um, junior A, B, and lower leagues. Um, you know, talking to one Western Hockey League executive, um, he actually said it would be against the rules for um, dub teams to pay um, for those players playing um, in those pay-to-play leagues. So it would be left up to the the payers to the players to pay. Or maybe it gets waived for them, and not sure if that would be fair either. But um, I guess uh, they'll we'll look for the small print on that, I suppose. Um, a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. 
the CHL lawsuit uh, in terms of the minimum wage, that, that settlement of what was it, $30 million, it seemed like mm-hmm. both sides had kind of come to terms and it was supposed to go before the courts. And then something happened where it was, uh, well, I, I guess it was canceled. I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how these things work, but what, what's the latest there that you're aware of? And how does that happen when both sides agree to a settlement and then somebody else says no? Yeah, well, I'm not, just to make it clear, I'm not a lawyer either. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, uh, CHL lawsuit, um, was rejected last week by two separate judges, one in Ontario and one in Quebec. Um, in Quebec, a Montreal judge wrote that the settlement terms were too broad and could give the CHL too much prote- protection from, uh, liability for conduct outside uh, the claims in this case. And that's important because the CHL is also facing other lawsuits at this time. There's a class action suit over abuse and hazing claims, and there's another class action regarding concussions. And both of those suits have yet to be um, certified. In Ontario, a judge said the current settlement could prevent players from participating in other class actions and that he was concerned about the amount of money the lawyers in the action were receiving versus the players in the settlement. So essentially, both sides will have to go back and hammer out a new deal. Interesting how that all works. Then there's the other lawsuit that was announced uh, about the same time as uh, this uh, development. Uh, Kobe Moore, former Edmonton Oil King and Kamloops Blazer, I think uh, a couple other places, Kelowna Moose Jaw, leading a, a lawsuit against not just the CHL, but also the NHL, the American Hockey League, and the East Coast Hockey League in regards to restricting player movement, uh, which that one surprised me. But uh, what are you hearing about that? Yeah, that one also has yet to be um, certified. And uh, that really does involve pretty much everyone. So um, that's not really a, a, a CHL standalone like the uh, other two are. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be interesting to see whether or not, uh, um, you know, that, that goes forward. All right. Well, so much happening around the uh, – the Canadian Hockey League, and uh, none of it, well, most of it, not on the ice yet. Of course, we know what's happening in the queue. Uh, Sanaya, I really appreciate your time. I hope you don't mind if I can call you again. It was great talking to you. Thank you, too. That's Sanaya Sapergi from The Athletic, conversation that uh, she and I had on um, Wednesday, middle of the week. And obviously, <laughs> as you can tell, we are laughing at the uh, notion that uh, uh, we would even be considering an OHL season without uh, body contact, and then two days later, uh, you, uh, well, you know what's happened now with the with the sports minister in Ontario suggesting that uh, if they're going to play, uh, there won't be any body contact. Uh, crazy, but uh, that's where we are right now. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation with Sanaya. I, I mentioned it before, but we must have chatted for 40, 45 minutes after uh, we were done the uh, official interview. Uh, just solving world issues. She's great. We'll have her on uh, again for sure. Coming up next, we'll check what's happening uh, south of the border with the NCAA as um, all the conferences have their plans on uh, how they're going to start, some of them, as early as November 13th. Jimmy Connolly from USCHO will update us next here on the Pipeline Show. McKechnie wanted left half boards. McCarr skates down the boards to the corner, stops up there, then got around a defender to the side of the net, cuts in front, shoots, and Defender out of his skates in the left corner, cutting to the slot untouched, 
Hey, it's Kale McCarr of the Brooks Bandits, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. Passion, talent, development. NCAA hockey offers all that, and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Nick Bukestad. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! David Backus. And Zach Parisi were stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Comes around, it's all around. Don't you mean what's all around comes around, Ricky? Back on the Pipeline Show, time for an NCAA campus report. Jimmy Conley from USCHO is going to be my guest. Of course, all of these segments brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you are a player or if there's one in your family and everybody needs to know what they can or can't do to maintain their NCAA eligibility, well, College Hockey, Inc. is a great resource for that. You can get in touch with Nate Ewell or Mike Snee, and uh, they can steer you in the right direction as well and answer any questions that you might have. I have a lot of questions for Jimmy Connolly, so let's bring him in. Uh, Jimmy, how are you? Welcome back. I'm doing well, Guy. It's great to be back. And, I, you know, I feel like now that we're talking, I, I feel like we almost might have a season in front of us. <laughs> well, and it, it, it kind of feels that way from this side, too, because it seems like every conference now has some sort of concrete plan. I know you, you've written about that this week for USCHO. Maybe I'll start with which conference do you think has the best rollout, the way they – that they're going to go about it has the best chance for success. Um, well, that's that's an interesting question. I think that you have to look at how, the makeup of each conference, um, particularly geographically. Um, and when we look at geographics, obviously, Hockey East is probably in the most advantageous uh, spot right now because you do have so many teams. And, and for people that don't understand the geography of Hockey East, if you take Maine and Vermont out of it, you can get from pretty much one school to every other school in less than 90 minutes. There's wow. a couple maybe that would get up to two hours, but not, not that much. You know, Vermont is from most of the teams about three and a half hours and from Maine is about five hours. So those really you can't do it on day of game trip, but the intention is outside of Vermont and Maine, the travel either to or from. Uh, those two schools, every other trip would be a game day trip where teams would, you know, leave right before the game, you know, maybe two o'clock, three o'clock, whatever it needs to be. And you would travel home after the games and it would all be via bus. That league is going to play an entirely insular schedule. They will play a league schedule uh, where every team plays one another twice. That I believe would give you uh, 20 league games and then, uh, each team will have 10 additional games against fellow Hockey East teams that will uh, count as non-conference games. So 30 games total. Okay. Um, there will be no play outside of Hockey East for Hockey East teams. So I think that that is a, a model that should succeed. Uh, COVID numbers in New England have been relatively low for much of the summer months. They are uh, creeping higher in Massachusetts. Uh, in recent weeks, um, and you know, there's some still threat and all of, all of that sort of stuff. But 
Um, right now, I feel like Hockey East has a really good chance. The other league that I like their approach, it happens to be the one that is the most geographically spread out or one of the most geographically, and that's the NCHC. Yeah. Um, they What they are doing is separating their A-teams into two four-team uh, groups, if you will, and those four teams will play each other as part of uh, the schedule from January through March, all bus rides, there will be nobody getting on a plane. And then the other games so that you do get to play all of the other teams will be done in a bubble. They're actually calling it a pod. But the, what they're going to do is to start the season on December 1st, they're flying all of their eight teams to Omaha, um, which I guess is kind of a centrally located um, campus, but it also um, does have a, a medical school and a hospital and a full medical program that goes along with it. So all each, all, all eight teams will go to Omaha and play um, 10 of their league games against the other four teams. So the two groups kind of will, will play against one another and they will do that in a, in a 21 day span. Mm-hmm. So you will basically be playing every other day. There might be a, you know, a spot where you get uh, two days off here and there, but they will be playing, you know, week in, week out, weekend games, you know, weekday games, whatever it needs to be. Uh, there will be comprehensive testing available because of the resources that they'll have at that campus in Omaha. So it really takes almost what we saw with the NHL um, on a smaller scale um, and puts it into uh into effect i think that that should succeed as well as long as you don't have some sort of an outbreak within that bubble then you should you know in concept be successful so those are the two leagues that i like their approaches or feel that they are have the best chance of success but i think that all four all six leagues the other four you know being the wcha um atlantic hockey the ecac and the big 10 They've all, everybody has put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into their approach. And I think that all six conferences believe they can get games played. You know, all six conferences are trying to put in some contingency plans if there is a problem uh, in the middle of this, whether it's, you know, I think a lot of the conferences are going to try to schedule some bye weeks here and there. So if you have a weekend where, you know, you, you know, like what's going on with the Wisconsin's football team right now, where they have 18 players with, with uh, COVID, you can just move that game in concept to a few weeks later during one of those bye weeks. So um, I think that everybody's put a lot of thought. There's been probably more uh, communal effort among the six commissioners, the NCAA, uh, the presidents of the league, of the uh, schools are much more involved than they typically um, have been. Athletic directors are you know very hands-on in this. So I feel like college hockey has a chance here, but as we know with COVID, this is so unpredictable. We just, we really still don't, have any guarantees. Jimmy Conley from USCHO is my guest. Take a breath, Jimmy. I, I had you talking to <laughs> a lot there for a second. Uh, I, I find it interesting that uh, the, both the Big Ten and Atlantic Hockey kind of giving honorary uh, conference status to a couple of the independents. Arizona State will play with Big Ten and uh, Long Island University. The new team, the Sharks, will be uh, playing all, all their games against Atlantic Hockey. How do you think that's going to work out? And could that build to maybe a more uh, permanent status is this almost like a test run and we'll see how it goes and maybe we'll uh, add you guys permanently from then on well so i'll start with the second question first and that i i do think that both of these conferences you know they've been very explicit of saying that this is not has no bearing on a future membership but come on let's let's be realistic here 
Arizona State would be a nice fit for the Big Ten, uh, and I think that Long Island University would be an excellent fit in Atlantic. All of that said, the, the, the leagues have been gone out of their way to say that this is not you know something permanent and something that we're going to do just for one year here, and I I understand that, but I think for both of those programs, uh, it these are good fits. Okay. I don't think when you look at Arizona State, I don't think it's going to be easy. They are going to have to play. Every Big Ten team four times, that's uh, seven times four, 28, and all 28 games will be played on the road. So there will be no home hockey in Arizona this year. That is a huge disadvantage because their home rink had been such a, a home ice advantage. It's a small barn. They could really get a, you know loud and fired up. It was a difficult place to play. So I think that that is a bit of a disadvantage to them. But and talking to Greg Powers a couple of days ago, you know, he said, listen, we're just happy to be in a situation that we're playing hockey because as an independent, when you don't have somebody really watching out for your back and it's an air trip for any team in the country, mm-hmm. every league seems to be wanting to limit air travel, if not totally eliminated. I think that they were in a really dangerous uh, predicament, you know, Long Island, maybe not as much. They have a lot of bus trips that they could make easily. So I don't think that they were as, as threatened. And, and listen, they announced the start of their program after COVID was part of the daily life. So they knew that they were taking risks, but for ASU, I think they had to get to the big 10 or somewhere where they would be able to find a situation where teams would be willing to play. Speaking of air travel, Jimmy, what's the status with uh, both clubs out of uh, Alaska, both the Fairbanks and uh, the uh, Seawolves from Anchorage, Uh, what's their status this season? And uh, I guess moving forward and, and how do you get around the air travel for those two clubs? They're just going to play each other all year. No, I, I, I've got to get, I've got to get a little bit, uh, I've got to dig deeper. That was just announced late yesterday. Um, I know that the WCHA plans to play 18 games. My gut is that, uh, once Alaska gets down, they will stay down for extended periods when they're going on the road. I, but I, I don't quote me on that because I, I haven't really had the chance to talk to, um, anybody from the WCHA to get real specifics on theirs. But, you know, the remote learning part of college right now is a kind of a big advantage to, like, you know, Arizona State. Their education is entirely on the road right now. Mm. I, I'm, I'm sorry, online. So they can go on the road for as long as they need to. When they go, they're planning to go two weeks at a time. So I think that that's probably the approach we'll see with the Alaska schools as well. All right. That makes sense. I know uh, I, I haven't heard what it, the update is for the Ivy schools. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a couple of months, three months ago, didn't they announce that they were not playing at all this year? Has that changed? Uh, they, they are not playing in this calendar year. It does appear that the winter sport teams, so uh, basketball and hockey from the Ivy League perspective, will be able to ta- uh, begin play after January 1. And talking with Steve Hagwell a few times this week and last week, they're, they're planning on having a schedule that their league schedules full go after January 1. So teams in the ECAC, the, not, the six non-Ivies, if, and this is a big if because I think some schools are actually going to follow the Ivies approach and not allow any play until after January 1, but there will be some schools. I know that St. Lawrence is ready to go. I know that Quinnipiac is ready to go. So they will be able to go and find some non-league games. And whether they are playing themselves, playing within ECAC, similar to what Hockey East is doing, or Atlantic hockey teams have the ability, um, they're allowed to play non-conference games. So that is where I believe the non-Ivies will get most of their um, non-conference games from. 
I don't think that the Ivy League schools will be allowed to play any games out of conference this year. So they'll be only playing an ECAC slate. So that is the one thing has not been announced yet. Talk to Steve Hagwell today. It's still not finalized, but they're getting closer. Okay. I know we're a couple, two, three weeks away, maybe a month now for the NCHC. It, it still feels like it could be a long ways away, how quickly things can change. But uh, so when I ask you about what this means for the postseason and for the national tournament, I don't know if you have an answer, if there's any way to kind of predict what happens. But as of right now, is this a season without the pairwise because things are so different and there's not going to be a lot of uh, outside the conference games? Could you just have league playoffs this year and that's it? Um, I I do believe there is an intention to play a national tournament, but I think what you just mentioned, there will be no pairwise as a method of selecting the the 16 team field. Uh, I I I don't know, and and I've heard people on the committee say that they have worked. Um, there's a man, Tim Danahy, he's kind of the the stats guru of college hockey. He actually runs collegehockeystats.net and does a great job. But he also you know has always administered the pairwise. He has come up with some scenarios and presented them to the committee on how you select teams for a tournament when you really don't have a lot of cross-conference play that, you know, really, mm-hmm. that is the, that's the measuring stick of, of how good your teams really are and who deserves to make the tournament. And it's been used for so long now, you know, going back more than two decades. Um, he's presented some scenarios and talking to committee members, you know, Derek Schooley being one of them, you know, great friend of his, and he's a good guy for college hockey, but he said, they're just not close. They, nobody can really come up with a method, but I do know that there is an intent to play the national tournament. Now, everything, and I'm going right down to conference tournaments. Will they look like the same tournaments they have been in the past? Probably not. Um, you know, Josh Fenton uh, from the NCHC specifically, I posed the question, do you need to move your tournament to a smaller venue? They play at the XL Energy Center, a 20,000 seat venue. Mm-hmm. If you're not allowing fans or if you're going to limit it to 15% capacity, you know, you're talking a really small crowd in a big building that costs a lot to, to operate and open. So he said that they have had some conversations, but they're not ready to move. But if there are no fans, then I would not expect to see the Hockey East tournament played at TD Garden. I would not expect to see the NCHB tournament played um, at, at the XL Energy Center. So I, that's another kind of wrinkle in this that I think the conference tournaments could change. You might not see best two out of three quarterfinal rounds. You might see the entire tournament played in one venue within a four-day period. I, I, I believe the Big Ten has already said that that's how they're go, going to approach it. Seven teams will all go to one venue. Maybe I don't know if Arizona State would be uh, part of it or not, but their teams are going to go and just play a single elimination tournament over three or four days instead of having stuff span out throughout weekend. So there's a lot TBD um, when it comes to the postseason, but I don't expect the postseason to look like anything that we're used to seeing. All right, what about the bean pot? Is everything uh, a go with the bean pot as normal, although maybe not playing uh, at the home of the Bruins? Uh, that's still a question that's up in the air right now. And, you know, I think there's been conversations that have been uh, had. And, you know, the, the tournament is something that's obviously a big part of the college hockey landscape. But when you really look at what is going on in Boston right now, the, the mayor and the governor in Boston have you know, you have the New England Patriots playing in a 70,000 seat stadium right now with no fans. 
if there's no fans, I can't imagine that you play that tournament or you don't play it in the way that you have. You know, same thing. You might end up having a couple of Monday nights where you, you know, play games on campuses. So maybe you play, um, you know, one semifinal at Boston University and you play one semifinal at Harvard. And then the next week, whoever wins, then you f- figure out where to play that game just to say the tournament was played possibly. Yeah. But um, I know that Christmas tournaments, which have been obviously a big part of college hockey for a number of years, there will be no Christmas or holiday tournaments, however you want to deem them. So in, in, I don't expect that teams won't be playing in that time. I think that you will have teams still playing around the, the Christmas break and holiday but I think you'll be playing league games. You'll be playing, you know, non-conference games. Tournaments right now just don't make a lot of sense. Lastly, Jimmy, I wanted to ask you about the the whole transfer portal. Uh, you kind of tweeted about it. It's about the transfer portal, and it, it's not limited just to seniors, right? Uh, maybe you got to explain it. To, well, dumb it down for this guy, uh, but also just for my audience that might not be aware of uh, what this is all about. There are there pros and cons to this. Maybe give us some insight. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll explain it all first, and a lot of people might not understand it, but, you know, in college athletics, there have been five sports. It's been uh, uh, men's and women's basketball, uh, men's uh, football, there's no women's, but so football, men's baseball, and then men's ice hockey. Those five sports, if you decide to leave a school um, and you still have not completed your degree at a school, then you typically would either have to sit out a full season before you are eligible to play at the new school, or you would have to get a waiver from your current coach and uh, current administration. So if I wanted to say transfer from Northeastern to Cornell, I would have to uh, get Jim Madigan to sign off on the transfer, or I would then have to sit out an entire season and then, you know, wait and come back. And that would be my red shirt year where you don't play for an entire year. Right. Uh, what this has, this legislation that is on the table uh, seeks to do is, is give an athlete, a student athlete, a one-time transfer without having to sit out. Now there will be restrictions to this. I, I'm told that the student athlete will have to notify the current team before May 1st. If you do it after May 1st, and you still want to transfer, then you'd have to sit out a season. So you have to do it before May 1st. You can only do it one time. You have to be in good academic standing at your current institution. Um, But then you would be able to go and transfer to any other school. You could transfer even from, say, Division Three up to Division One. You're not allowed to do that right now without sitting out. So it would, it allows, it opens up a lot more options. Uh, I was a little concerned when I first heard about it because I didn't know that I hadn't heard about the one-time transfer rule. I I didn't want to see this become free agency, you know, where a kid, you know, doesn't like a school, leaves that school. Next thing, you know, next, uh, you know, next September, he's playing somewhere else. Doesn't get along with that coach. Next September, he's playing somewhere else. This is, it really is only a one-time situation. Um, And the other thing that comes into this too, you know, people worry about, oh, well, you know, it, it really is a, a way of getting out of your obligation to, to a school when you sign with the school. But the reality is, is a school has the ability to pull their commitment to a student athlete at any time. Right. But the student athlete has never been, had the ability to do it, you know, to, to have that same flexibility without penalty. This 
basically just takes away that penalty. And because it was only in five NCAA sports of the whatever it is, of, you know, dozens of sports that are offered out there, uh, I think it was just looked at as you were restricting students in these sports, these high-profile sports, for no real good reason. So, again, it's only a one-time thing. I think it, it, it does sound like it is gonna, going to go through, um, but I don't know that it's going to have too many uh, cons to it. The pros definitely outweigh the cons. You want to give the student-athlete a little bit of flexibility. Um, and the NCAA, as much as people um, complain about them, I think that they are trying to be a little bit more progressive toward the student-athlete and not against, and I think that this is a big part of it. All right. So the transfer portal, I don't know if it's just my perception, but it seems like over the last two, three years, it's been used more often than before that. Yes. Is that would you say that's correct? Yeah, well, it, it definitely um, has. You know, if, if the transfer portal, I think, is only around for about five or six years. I'm not exactly okay. sure. Um, but it, it was really set up for football. Um, but then some hockey coaches did kind of find a loophole out there that said, if you if a, an athlete has finished their four year degree and still have eligibility left, so they didn't play all four seasons, so that means you have to get your full four year degree completed in three years. Mm-hmm. Then that fourth year, they are allowed to transfer without penalty as long as they um, go into a graduate studies program. That is what a lot of these schools have used it for. That is where the transfer portal really became a big part of college hockey. Um, but now you do, you, I mean, you do see a lot of student athletes, um, using it to d- do the traditional transfer where they would either have to get the waiver or sit out the year. Now, yes, I do believe the transfer portal will become, um, a much more, uh, you know, sought after and used aspect for college hockey. Um, and, you know, I don't, I still don't expect to see, you know, just wild transfers, you know, all over the place. But if you are a player that, you know, maybe has some success at a lower tier program that doesn't maybe excel on the ice, do you maybe then take a flyer, go into the transfer portal and hope that one of those programs that is in the top five is maybe looking for a good second line winger or, you know, good second pair defenseman. Yeah. And that's, you might fit there. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, it, it does threaten some of the smaller programs, but we've also seen some really small programs have a lot of success. And I don't think that that is lost on too many um, players right now. You know, you, when you look at schools like Quinnipiac, Union, um, Providence, all, you know, all being either in the national title game or winning, even Minnesota Duluth, that's a division two school. It's not even hockey's the only one division one sport on their campus. So, um, you know, you see these schools that are not exactly Michigan and Minnesota and Boston College and uh, Boston University and Penn State. These these smaller programs have success. So I, I, I think that if managed well, we won't see a ton of transfers. Uh, really quickly, before I let you go, I know we both got to run, but uh, the top 20 poll came out this week for USCHO uh, North Dakota on top. Was that by a mile or is it a tight race at the top? How do you see things right now? Uh, I, I think that it's hard to predict. I, you know, p- you know, people are making putting votes forward, not knowing what the season will look like for a lot of these teams. And I think that when you look at the fact that there's not going to be a lot of non-conference play, you, you see the NCAC is going to be a team, a league where a lot of teams beat one another up. So the fact that North Dakota still came out as the consensus, uh, I, I'm impressed. 
Um, I think I, I think I have Minnesota Duluth on the top of my ballot. So same situation. They're, they're going to have a hard path forward, but you know, it's one of those things that if you can survive in that league, you can survive in a national tournament. Uh, I think that there's a lot of parity at the top though. Um, I don't know what team is really going to be able to pull things together and, you know, run through their league slate with success, you know, and that's really what is going to dictate national success this year. So I think North Dakota has a lot of talent and I think that they get a lot of respect just for the, the long-term success of their program. But I think when you look at the top 10 to any one of those teams right now, and probably some teams that are in the bottom of the top 20 and maybe some teams that weren't even ranked this uh, first poll will have a lot of chances uh, this season. It's going to be a wide open race. I like the Bulldogs, but boy, that defense uh, got thinned out uh, from last season. It did. Still, <laughs> still think they're that good, eh? I still think they're darn good. I mean, and, and just well coached. That's another big part of it. When you have a, a coach like Scott Sandlin that, you know, I feel like he gets so much out of every player. He's able to, you know, really get the talent out of players that maybe if they're in another program don't have as much, much success. I, I like Scotty and I like his, his, you know, his ability to, to turn out as every, he turns every player into a, a, a very viable player. And that's what makes them a, a team that's good year after year. Jimmy, the next time you're on the Pipeline show, there'll be actually hockey games we can talk about. Uh, that'll be fun. I hope so. <laughs> November 13th is the target date. Let's get there. Let's, Let's get, get there, there for sure. <laughs> Knock on wood. Uh, thanks for your time, Jimmy, as always. Hey, anytime. Great to, great to join you, and uh, let's drop the puck soon. Oh, Love having Jimmy on the show because he knocks it out of the park every time and also because it lets me uh, use the Van Halen uh, oh, Jimmy at the end. Great stuff from Jimmy Connolly at USCHO. Always does a terrific job of uh, bringing us up to speed on what's happening around college rinks. One more segment to get to uh, this week. Hockey Canada released their uh, 46 and then became 47-man camp roster ahead of the World Junior Championship. It's a huge amount of players, but he explains why they went that big. And by he, I mean General Manager Alan Miller, also the GM of the Moose Jaw Warriors, he closes out this week's episode of the Pipeline Show next. Stutzler back to Sider, across to Bach. Dominic Bach, great pass in for Stutzler. Slides it back across, they score! Hello, this is Tim Stutzler from Mannheim, and this is the Pipeline Show. Troubled Monk Brew of the Week sure is a tasty one, but what is it? Bucktooth Belgian White, a light and citrusy, flavorful beer. This Belgian White is a perfect patio pint. Try it with a freshly cut orange to brighten up your already sunny day. Player comparable, Patrick Kane knows what season to turn it on and has splashes of brilliance. Troubled Monk, visit the tap room in Red Deer or get free same-day home delivery in Alberta by placing an order at TroubledMonk.com. Troubled Monk. Craft beverages worth sharing. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Yeah, I heard about that thing on the AM radio. Oh, Last segment of this week's show is uh, earlier this week, or, or actually on Thursday of this week. Hockey Canada announced their uh, list for their uh, World Junior Camp roster, and 46 players uh, will be convening on Red Deer, looking to uh, claim, 
I believe it's uh, an expanded roster this year. We'll, we'll ask my next guest as uh, we're joined by the uh, well, the GM of the team, Alan Miller, who's also the GM of the Moose Jaw Warriors. Alan, welcome back to the Pipeline Show. How are you? Ah, all good, Geek. Great, uh, great to connect with you, and it's nice to talk hockey, isn't it? Yes, it is, I, I, and I appreciate you making the time. I, I know it's been a busy week for you. Uh, right, ne- the title next to your name on the Hockey Canada page is Management Group. You're a one-man group, I guess. Uh, does that basically does it kind of boil down to GM? Is that yeah? Hockey Canada has a, a PO POE Management Group uh, where they have three general managers, one from each league across the Canadian Hockey League, and um, and as you know, Guy, under 17, under 18, under 20. And it's a great opportunity. I, I'm honored to have it. I, I've got to spend the last two years with the Holinka Gretzky team mm-hmm. at the under 18 level. And, um, and what our role is, is to work within the management group, um, uh, with the national junior team. You know, Andre Turney is our head coach, Scott Salmon, uh, senior VP of national teams, Ben Shutron, manager of national teams. And, and we really work as a, a collaborative group, um, on the management of the team. Um, the selection of the team, uh, our schedule, all, all different things, uh, we work together. So, um, you know, that CHL general manager with those programs is bring experience, bring leadership and, and work in a collaborative effort in the, in the best interest of those programs. You make me feel old when you say Ben Shutron because I remember him as a player uh, trying to out for these teams and now he's one of the brass uh, for Hockey Canada. That's amazing. And I guess that's just, we're old. Well, and, uh, and, and I can say the exact same thing because I was a general manager in the OHL when Ben was drafted and played in the Ontario Hockey League. There so you go. now, and, and he's a real sharp young guy. I uh, really enjoy working with him. He's got a bright future in the game. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it's funny you said that, Guy, because even, uh, even the other day I was, uh, I was calling CHL GMs to give them an update about their players being named to the roster. And, uh, and the camp details. And I called Kyle Raftis in the Sioux and I called Paul McFarland in Kingston. And again, those were both two players that played in the OHL when I was a manager there. So we, we, we talked about that and, uh, and how old, uh, I was feeling. But, uh, uh, great for those young people that, uh, that have bright futures in the game. For sure. All right. Let's get to the roster. And I mentioned it's 46 players who have been invited to the camp. That, to me, I was surprised that it was a number that big because it seems like in this day and age around the global pandemic and all that, that the camps have been much smaller. So why did you settle on 46? Well, and I'll just add, uh, Guy, that uh, it, uh, as of minutes before the press conference this morning, it jumped to 47 with the addition of Kirby Dock. Right. Uh, exciting news uh, in uh, from the Chicago Blackhawks in regards to uh, to Dock. So uh, we're at 47, and... and and ultimately, Guy, the the idea to start the camp is is first of all, as you know, Ontario and, and the West not playing any games, um, Quebec League playing minimal games. Uh, we we had no summer camp, no season, no Canada Russia series. Um, these players have not played a meaningful game since March, so we have to go in this camp uh, and and we have to select a team and we have to prepare a team to play at the World Junior level. So first and foremost, um, we want to start the camp off with a larger group, essentially put two teams together, mm-hmm. um, play three inter-squad games. Um, and after we play those three inter-squad games, then we'll release players and get down to a group of 25 to 30. 
then we'll play additional three games. We're working with U Sport uh, to play three games with you against U Sport to finalize our roster. Um, and then as we get into to early December, finalize our roster, play U Sport a couple more times, and then go into the bubble in Edmonton. Excellent. Uh, and the rosters this year are slightly expanded, are they not? Yes. Uh, the with the you know with COVID with the bubble. Um, players, uh, obviously once you're in the bubble, can't go in or out. Mm-hmm. Um, so the IHF, uh, uh, to give the teams the best flexibility and, and deal with injuries, um, the rosters will be, uh, at 25. So essentially, um, you know, we're looking at it from Team Canada's perspective, 14 forwards, eight defensemen and three goaltenders. All right. Excellent. Uh, Alan Miller, the uh, GM for, uh, Hockey Canada and the U-20 squad, as well as the Moose Jaw Warriors. He's my guest here on the Pipeline Show as we uh, look at the roster for Canada's camp. With Kirby Doc coming back, and how many other returning players do you have? Is it about six or seven, I guess, from last year? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's led by, you know, guys like Cousins, uh, Connor McMichael uh, from London, uh, Quinton Byfield, who just went number two overall to L.A., um, two guys that'll be... You know, real cornerstones on our back end, uh, Jamie Drysdale and, uh, and Bowen Byram from the, the Vancouver Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, Dawson Mercer from Jakutami is a returning player. Um, so we've got, uh, um, you know, we've got a good core group there that, uh, has gone through the experience, uh, has won a gold medal. Um, both Andre Tournier and Mitch Love were on that staff last year with Dale Hunter. So they've got a, you know, they know these players, uh, the returning players well. Um, so we're real comfortable with uh, the core group to start off uh, the camp. Is it is it important to have some of the staff from last year, uh, from one year, carry over to the next, just to have that uh, that sort of that consistency? I mean, heck, even Brian Cheeseman is uh, back as the athletic director for the club. Yeah, yeah, excited, uh, excited to have Cheese involved. He's a, he's a great man, as you know. Um, you, you know what, Gail, take it a little bit of a step further. And when you look at our staff, uh, this, this group has a lot of experience with the 2001 and 2002 age groups, which when you look at what we've dealt with in terms of the lack of games, it's, it's really been key in us being able to put, put this group together. Because when you go back to the old one, Halinka Gretzky tournament in Edmonton, Andre Tournier was the head coach. Mitch Love was an assistant coach on that staff. Jason LaBarber was the goalie coach of that team, and I was the manager of that team. Mm-hmm. So then you go a year later to the 0-2 Olinka Gretzky team. Uh, Michael Dick is the head coach of that team, and he's an assistant coach on this staff. And then as we discussed about Andre and Mitch being on last year's World Junior team, we've got a lot of experience with these two age groups, which will, 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 which will make up the majority of our team. And, you know, the only player that's not in one of those two age groups is Shane Wright, um, so I think that, uh, um, that staff familiarity with the group has been real important. Um, and, uh, and I think it's certainly benefited us up to this point and we'll continue to do that as we get into camp and finalize our team. Uh, we talked about how it's, uh, you know, you got a lot of returning players. So in, in one regard, it's a, it's a veteran lineup. You did just mention uh, Shane Wright and I have to ask about him cause he's a, a double underage, not eligible until the 2022 draft. But he's legit. This isn't just a, a token invite for a for a young a good young player. This guy has a chance to actually crack your lineup. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a special player, Guy. I can I can tell you, you know, a couple things from our deliberations on him. First of all, um, Andre Tourney is the head coach of the Ottawa 67, so uh, he saw a lot of Shane Wright last year, and and Andre talked about Shane from his his draft year playing minor midget to early on in the OHL season, and just how we got better and better and progressed from start of the season to Christmas to the second half and near the end. And, uh, you know, 15 years old, 39 uh, goals in Kingston. Um, you know, Kingston was a lower-seeded team in the OHL uh, in somewhat of a rebuild. Um, you know, for him to lead that team is is impressive. Um, the other thing I can tell you is when we started our video scouting um, and um, – and Mitch Love, uh, head coach in Saskatoon, Michael Dick, the head coach in Vancouver, both of them were dropping notes to our group uh, when they were watching Shane Wright saying, there's no way this guy's 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so what I saw of him in terms of, I, I, I got the opportunity to uh, to see him at, at, uh, at the under-17s, um, but as we really dug into him in, in, on video, um, is, uh, yeah, the 39 goals is one thing, Um he plays hard. He can really shoot the puck. Um, I was really impressed as a young player about his complete game. Um, and, and I, for some reason, he thought that he was, a, he was a driver and a power forward type guy, which he's got some of that in his game. Um, but he's got real good sense, real good vision, can slow down the game, makes great plays. Um, yeah, he's got a real bright future, and, and he'll – He'll be on, you know, he's he's legitimate uh, in terms of being on this camp roster, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking lots about him through November and December as we try to put this team together. Alan Miller from the Moose Jaw Warriors and Team Canada, my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Uh, I want to ask you about the uh, the goaltending situation. You, you, you're inviting five to camp, uh, not quite the same five that were involved in the virtual camp in August. Uh, one difference, uh, Devin Levi in, Sebastian Kosa out of the Oil Kings. Uh, what changed over the last four months since nobody's been playing? Well, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, while, while haven't been playing, um, we've certainly done a lot of video scouting. Um, um, we had a number of processes, um, uh, you know, where we're watching video as a, as a group, um, myself, our entire coaching staff, uh, doing evaluations, uh, doing player personnel calls. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, you know, we just felt that this group of five, um, you know, based on, uh, based on their experience, um, uh, based on their track record at the, the WHL level, uh, at the major junior level, sorry, um, within the, the Hockey Canada programs, um, Levi was, uh, the MVP, um, of the world junior a challenge uh took canada east to the gold medal game in overtime against a real real good russia team um we just felt that uh, these five guys uh um were the five best uh candidates to, to 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 earn two or three spots on our team um we understand sebastian is a tremendous young goaltender um lots of upsides gonna have a real chance to be maybe the guy a year from now um, at the end of the day, uh, our group really liked Kosa, um, but at the same time, um, you know, he lacks experience as a number one goaltender at this level. 
Um, he's battled some injuries. He's only played 33 games in the WHL. Uh, and we just felt that the other five goalies were ahead of him in terms of experience and the chance to play at this level. Okay. Well, I appreciate the explanation. Usually in a normal year, we would say, you know, the, the CHL guys would come to camp and they've got, by the time the December, uh, uh, world junior camp rolls around 25, 30 games under their belt. Uh, and the college guys would only have like 10 or 11. Complete opposite this year. Some of the, most of the college players will start playing games here in a couple of weeks. Uh, do the, uh, do the NCAA guys, you have four of them on your roster, uh, and the guys who have played a little in the queue, do they have a little bit of a, a foot up on their, uh, OHL and WHL counterparts this year? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the NCAA teams, uh, although they haven't played any games yet, um, you know, they've, they've been, uh, they've been together. They've been skating with, uh, their teammates. They've been skating with their coaching staff. Um, and, and as you mentioned, the, the Q's been playing, although they have been in a bit of a pause, particularly, uh, in Quebec for the last, uh, last couple of weeks. So, yeah, I think those guys, um, um, you know, may have a slightly little bit of an edge, uh, over the Ontario West guys, but, um, you know, I, I think, uh, a lot of the guys in Ontario and the West here are, uh, in real good situations. Um, you know, a lot of guys are skating with WHL players. A lot of guys are skating with pro players. Um, you know, a lot of good coaches across Western Canada and, and Ontario leading these guys through, uh, structured programs, uh, uh, intense workouts. Um, and I think we've structured our camp. Um, where it's, it, it's, it's, it's got some time to it. It's got some length to it. Um, we're, we're going to be able to ease the guys in with four days of practice before we start to get into games. Um, but I think certainly Guy, you can't underestimate the fact that, that some guys are playing games and, and, uh, some guys, guys haven't. And, and we'll see how that all plays out once we get into camp. Lastly, when you get into the uh, the battles for roster spots, we talked about the returning guys, and more often than not, they're pretty much locks to be on the, the roster, uh, again, if they're returning. And I'm not expecting you to tell me the answer, but how many spots do you have written in ink already, and how many spots of the 24 uh, are still up for up for grabs uh, once camp opens? Well, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, I think, I think most, knowledgeable hockey fans and, uh, um, you know, can kind of look at the group and say, he's in, he's in. Um, but at the same time, you know, we just talked about the uniqueness of this process. We yeah. just talked about the challenges of, you know, who's been playing, um, you know, what, what are certain players been doing for the last eight or nine months and, and not playing a meaning, meaningful game, uh, since March. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, Guy, this this is this is a strong group. Um, there's a lot of talent here from top to bottom. I think it's a deep group, um, and uh, it's it's going to be a very very competitive, very very competitive camp. So, I know I didn't exactly answer your question and, and give you the numbers and exactly how many spots are available. Um, but in this unique season, we're going to have to have an open mind uh, because normally we've got a good idea, like who's taken a step, who's faster, who's stronger, because we've had them in the summer. We've had them in the Canada Russia series. We've been watching the CHL season. We don't know where everybody's at. at. That's why the number of players and this extended camp leading us into Edmonton um, is going to be so important. 
Well, I'm glad you framed it that way because that's kind of what I was getting at. You worded it better than I did. Just with the differences with having no hockey, I wondered how many spots were still legitimately uh, up for grabs. Um, I guess if there's one position that might be wide open, is it between the pipes? Because you got five guys who weren't on the team last year all competing. Uh, yeah, it uh, it certainly is. I think, uh, um, you know, I think we've gone through the years with the World Junior Team and 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 there's always for the most part not every year Guy, but there's always seemed to be that heir apparent to 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 the 19 year old goaltender that should be or is going to be the guy uh a year later and um they didn't have that a year ago um you know joel holfer and and nico dawes from guelph both weren't at the summer evaluation camp mm-hmm. um but ended up being the, the goaltenders for the team and, and Holfer, Holfer was outstanding when he took over for Dawes after the second or third game of the tournament. Um, so for us, uh, goaltending is, is wide open. Um, you know, we feel we have, um, as I mentioned earlier, we feel we have five strong candidates. Um, and, uh, um, that will be, that will be an interesting, uh, discussion for us. Jason LaBarbera, our goalie coach will, uh, be front and center in terms of working with the goaltenders and uh, uh, and making those evaluations and 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 making a final decision and and getting them ready to play. Um, but yeah, certainly right now uh, uh, when it comes to the, the where we are in net, um, that 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 position is wide open for these five guys to compete for. I said a couple of questions ago that that was the last one, but I got one more. Uh, for you and the other CHL guys that are involved in the in Hockey Canada and the staff getting set for this tournament, nice to have that distraction, whereas everybody else is kind of waiting for the CHL seasons to start. You know, as you wait for January 8th with the Moose Jaw Warriors, it's nice to have this going on at the same time for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. And, uh, um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, you can use all the words. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Um, uh, you know, for me, this this tournament, uh, I think it's it, it means so much to the country. And and you know, all all of us that follow the game, um, you know, we we love Christmas time and 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 the World Junior Championships. And uh, I've done this for a long time. And and you know, I think uh, you know, kind of the pinnacle if you're a CHL GM for a long time. Uh, to get the opportunity to work with the world junior team is, is real, real special. So, um, it, uh, you know, when I accepted the position, uh, it looked a lot different than, than, than the, throughout this, the last six, seven months than, than it really was. Um, um, but it, it, it has been a, a good distraction. It's, it's, it's kept us real busy. And, and I think at the end of the day, Guy, you can, you can talk about the uniqueness. You can talk about the challenges. Talk about guys not playing, but uh, um, at the end of the day, um, you know, our group uh, has worked real hard and we're going into Edmonton to defend our, our, our gold medal and, and uh, make it back-to-back uh, world championships. When do you uh, get to Red Deer? Uh, the, players, the players will travel to Red Deer on November 16th. Uh, staff will congregate in Red Deer on the 14th. Excellent. Well, enjoy camp. Uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck. We're all Canadian. Uh, well, not everybody listening is Canadian, but uh, we'll certainly be cheering for you here on Home Soil. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate that. Uh, always great to, to connect and uh, join you on the Pipeline Show. Have a great day. Alan Miller from Hockey Canada and the Moose Jaw Warriors uh, telling us uh, everything that went into putting that roster together, at least the camp roster. 
interesting to see uh, the competition they'll play, being U-Sport teams. U-Sport's not playing right now either, so how they'll uh, couple together a uh, an opponent will be interesting. Let me know what you think of the uh, roster. Everybody's going to say there's uh, one person that's left off and uh, and a surprise inclusion or something like that, but uh, you can let me know. At TPS underscore Guy is where you can get me on Twitter. Give me a follow and uh, let me know who you think uh, Canada forgot about or uh, that you were surprised got an invite. I still go back to Sebastian Cosa. I, I, I don't get that. Uh, he and Tristan Lennox are the same age. They're both draft eligible in 2021. Cosa's numbers way better than Lennox's numbers. Both of them were on contending teams last year. So I don't get it. I know Lennox has played for Hockey Canada in the past. If that's the only difference, then uh, I don't get it. But we'll see. Maybe I'm just a homer as uh, Kosa plays for the Edmonton Oil Kings. All right, with that, that is uh, the end of this week's episode. I appreciate all four guests that you heard from. Next week on the Pipeline Show, it'll be more of the same as we continue to uh, look ahead to the upcoming World Junior Championship here in Edmonton. And with how quickly things have been changing over the last uh, number of weeks, Uh, Who knows what else will be the hot topic issues this time next week. But until then, my name is Guy Fleming. Remember to treat each other with uh, kindness and respect and help out your neighbor when you can. Continue to wash your hands, wear your mask, and do all the things that we're supposed to be doing to look after ourselves, our family, and one another. Until next week, my name is Guy Fleming. See ya. See ya.